Welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week I'm grinning ear to ear. Our guest is Christy Demeester, writer, candle maker, and author of Such a Pretty Smile, the first book I read in 2022, and it was a hell of a good start to the year. So this is one of those novels that it's hard to really talk about without spoiling key mysteries. But as always, we do our best to intrigue you and entrance you without telling you too much. Suffice it to say, the novel is about violence and misogyny and the evils that men do, but with a monstrous face that you haven't seen before. It's like Red Riding Hood, rewritten for the post-Gone Girl generation. And I say that even though as Christy makes clear, she has not gone, quote, full werewolf. We talk about misogyny in horror, both grand and minor, about how the genre treats female puberty, about pretty girl privilege, and about the horrific concepts of the lesser dead. And no, that isn't a vampire reference for you Chris Buhlman fans. In fact, it's something much, much worse. Oh, and if you want proof of how great a guest Christy is, I even forgive her for making dogs evil in this book. So, come with me to an old abandoned funfair in New Orleans. There's a man behind the ferris wheel with a wide open grin and he wants to teach you a lesson. Let's talk scared. Hi, Christy, and welcome to Talking Scared. I am so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Not at all. Whereabouts in the world are you today? I am currently in um, metro Atlanta, Georgia, on a, what is a very, very, very cold January day. Um, Finally, finally, after a December filled with 70 degree days, we're down into the 30s and 20s, so it finally feels appropriately winter. Yeah. Did you have a nice Christmas and New Year and all that? Are you ready to face whatever kind of biblical scourge 2022 has to offer? I don't know if I'm quite ready for that of every, every, you know, every month I think to myself, oh, it's going to get better. Things will, things have to be better within a couple of months. Right. And then, you know, of uh, we continue to devolve and fall apart and that's okay. Uh, but no, it was a lovely Christmas. We had a, we had a wonderful time um, with family. So I am very thankful for that. Good, I'm glad. Well, I mean, as we said off air, we've both got colds, but we've both kind of skirted COVID, we believe. But um, yeah, listeners, if we sound a little nasal, we we do apologise, but you know the drill by now. That's right. I think we're, I think so many of us are there. You can't help but, you know, identify. Exactly. I mean, I'm just glad to not have the vid so far. It's coming. It's coming. I mean, Omicron is kind of tightening its grip in the UK because we decided to kind of let it rip after all this. But yeah, it's definitely coming. (laughs) Enough about all that, that there are more fun horrors to talk about. So you're my very first interview of the year. Hey. And I'm delighted to be kicking off with such an interesting novel. The book is called Such a Pretty Smile, and it's published today, January 18th, by St. Martin's Press. In a moment, I will ask you to give us a brief introduction to the story. But first of all, I need to check something. So in your author bio, you mentioned that you spend a lot of time telling people how to pronounce your name. Yes. So I have a tongue that can bastardize even the simplest words. So can I just <laughs> check I'm saying it right? Is it Demista? It is. Oh, you, you did it. Uh, congratulations. Um, it's it's pronounced exactly as it's spelled, yeah. but you'd be amazed. What's so hard? How, how, the, how the hell do people get that <laughs> wrong? I get all kinds of pronunciations. Most of the time it's Demester, which I kind of wonder if they skipped phonics when they were in elementary school, because I'm like, in what world does the double <laughs> E make a make a soft, you know, eh. But um, I, I get Demester a lot. I get Demeister a lot. I get all kinds of things when I, so I, I, yeah, I spend a lot of time explaining that. Well, that's ridiculous, but I'm glad I got it right anyway. Uh, right, with that sorted, let's get to your book. Can you tell us what we need to know about Such a Pretty Smile? Yes, so Such a Pretty Smile follows um, a dual timeline between a mother and a daughter. So you have sections of the book that are set in 2004 and sections of the book that are set in 2019 and them dealing with 
a number of secrets that are held around a series of murders that are attributed to a serial killer called the Kerr. And both mother and daughter are experiencing these unexplained visions and experiences and things that maybe some people would classify as hallucinations. And in the unraveling of these secrets, this this mother and daughter eventually come together to fight back against this force that is targeting specifically young women who are in society deemed as maybe problematic in that they don't know how to be polite, lovely young ladies. And as those secrets come to light, that things get progressively nastier. And um, I think that's probably the best way I can sum up that book without really giving a lot away. Yeah, I had a tweet um, a few weeks ago from a listener who who pointed out how often I have to say on this show, you know, spoiler warning, don't want to spoil it, etc. And and he said to me, like, why do you mm. think there are so many twists in horror these days when there didn't used to be? And it's a good point because there didn't used to be. Stephen King has never written a twist in his life that I can think of. Um, but but books mm. and horror novels more and more are kind of high concept in this way. Yours is no exception. And I was kind of thinking, how do I sort of start this interview? Um, how do I kind of set the promises? And then I thought, right, I'm actually going to use some words that aren't yours and aren't mine because the review copy of this book that I received contains a message from Alexandra Suhulster, your editor at St. Yeah. Martin's. And she takes quite a strong line in this kind of message to reviewers because she's laying out the impulse behind such a pretty smile. And she writes that the book is, quote, an outlet to the anger resulting from men having no consequences for their actions. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to get a lot into that, I imagine, as this goes along. But to start off with, I can see how this book would be an outlet for anger. But I wonder, was it written in anger? There are certainly parts and the, of the book that I think I, I can I can vouch and say were written from an angry place. I hesitate to say that the entire entire book is written from an angry place, but maybe more from a reflective place of the the kind of long reaching impact of, of that sort of anger, that anger over a lack of culpability or anger over the blind eye that is turned toward poor behavior, um, very, very consistently turned toward poor behavior. But I, I, I certainly wasn't angry through the writing of the entire thing, but there are definitely parts where within one of the character's points of view, it's me, it's me talking, um, whether that be from personal experience or just personal reflections of similar situations but that anger yeah there's definitely teeth in there in in several places and without giving too much away this story seems to offer a wholly kind of original framework for misogyny because what we assume to be a kind of straightforward serial killer turns out to be something much odder and actually much more frightening. Yet it all remains quite elusive and and shadowy, even in the the final revelations. And I was left wondering whether you were writing about a literal phenomenon in the world of your novel, or whether it's actually all a bit of a metaphor for deeper-rooted misogyny. Does that question make sense? Oh, it absolutely does. And that was something that, during the writing of the book was a question that came up quite frequently of how much of this, well, because a lot of it is is literal. And a lot of it, I think, and, and I can't speak for every person who identifies as a woman, but from my own perspective as a woman, that there are a number of scenes and sequences and bits of dialogue that ring very true to being or you know living inside of a of a woman's body um however the the monster itself if 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 that's what you want to call it if you know you want to call the serial killer the cur the monster um certainly while there is literal threat there it, it can absolutely be seen as allegorical 
and the larger encapsulating kind of misogynistic threat that I think people, again, people who identify as women face on a, on a daily basis. And those that threat, whether literal or metaphorical, they take a lot of forms. They can be outright vicious. They can be violent. They can be cruel. But then they can, there's also those more passive moments that are equally as cruel, but maybe not violent. You know, I'm thinking about um, Daniel's character throughout the book. The, he he very much loves you know he he loves his he loves Caroline. He loves his fiance, but that his own jealousy and feelings that his his art or his ambition take precedence becomes this sort of misogyny that maybe he doesn't understand or he doesn't see, but it's something that I think women deal with quite frequently. So there's certainly literal things in there, but I think the cur in a larger sense <clears throat> was, as you said, meant to be this metaphorical representation of the larger scale that can spin out from maybe those smaller misogynistic moments. Yeah, you've totally encapsulated what I found most interesting about the book there. Because, well, for a start, actually, if anyone anyone listening to this right now is the kind of person who rolls their eyes when they see the Me Too hashtag, then probably switch off now because... Bye. Yeah, yeah, really, bye-bye, because we're kind of going deep on on, on that uh, in this conversation. Um, but yeah, everything you just said, so I'm talking from a position of relative ignorance here, because as, as I tweeted out when I wrote about your book, you know, I'm not the right person to really have an opinion on a lot of the themes in this book. I'm just here to talk to you about them. But, and there's that, that you know, that ultimate male, but <laughs> it, it does feel like as a culture, we are wising up and realizing that misogyny doesn't have to be grandiose and violent to be damaging and, and horrifying. And your book is full of those, you know, for want of a better word, microaggressions from Daniel's jealousy. Mm. There's a there's this fantastic scene in which Daniel, who is, uh, so to explain, there's Caroline, the mm. mother character, and, and Lila, the, the daughter character, and, and they, they've got this kind of bifurcated timeline, dual narrative thing going on. Daniel is Lila's father and Caroline's partner. Uh, and he has a mm. great deal of resentment and jealousy about Caroline's success in their, their mutual artistic pursuits. And and it, it makes your toes curl reading it, you know. And then even more so, there's the stuff with, with therapists, which I'll talk about in a bit more detail in a moment. Um, but they're all different layers of nastiness in this book, way before we get to the actual murder and violence. Do you think, mm -hmm. as readers and as, as participants in culture, that we are more attuned to that kind of microaggression in fiction these days? Uh, meaning as in that people are more cognizant of what those things are? Yeah, that we, that we don't just need to resort to, oh, a murdered woman as a representation of misogyny. Right. I, I sincerely hope so. And I, I, I think that... The good thing is that's happening more and more frequently now in the current state of fiction is that you have a broader population of people who are recognizing those microaggressions. I think that for a long time, probably people in marginalized groups recognize those micro those microaggressions, but that the larger population that maybe those would not have been directed to it just they it would not have hit them in the same way or they would have skipped right over it or um in a discussion of the book after the fact you know have felt shocked that someone recognized those things or felt you know impacted emotionally by those things whereas now i think that you do have a broader spectrum of people going aha and maybe even reflecting and thinking to themselves of moments when maybe they said something like that and not realize that they were being potentially offensive or hurting someone. Um, because I think that that's the cognizance that a lot of people are having to deal with now of these things that seemed so harmless before um, having to grapple with the fact that they've, they've actually brought harm. And so I am grateful for the, the more contemporary takes on these items and, and people willing to put them into the spotlight and, and ask people to look at these things as opposed to, you know, we used to, I think a lot of if fiction is a representation or an exaggerated hyperbolic representation of the real world, 
that we're willing to maybe put these things in people's faces and force us to reckon with the things that we used to hide in the dark. In that way, I mean, this this book, Such Pretty Smile, kind of, it continues a trend I've been seeing um, in the books and the interviews I've I've done. Zakia Delilah Harris is the other black girl is a is mm. a similarly debatable whether it's a literal or allegorical confrontation with with like kind of racial microaggressions. And then there's um, Sarah Flannery Murphy's Girl One, which does the same thing in in, in a slightly more benign way than this. Uh, but there is mm. again that these male characters are just committing these these paper cut you know attacks on the on the central protagonist and 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 it's the accumulation of that that in in a way is is more horrifying to me as a male reader because you know i'm not going to go out there and harm a woman but i have done some of these things i have i can reckon it recognize myself in in some of this male behavior um so it kind of hits that still hits Mm. me harder perhaps than the more grand guinol horror of the book if if that makes Mm -hmm. sense Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that was something as I was writing that as I was going through those scenes, um, even in those scenes where they are those very, as you said, I love that, I love that phrasing, the paper cuts, you know, um, that if people feel, you know, that's exaggerated of, oh gosh, this again, you know, that same thing that you mentioned earlier about like, if you're going to roll your eyes at the, at the hashtag me too, go ahead and you know, go away now. But um, it's, it's definitely one of those things where there, yeah, I mean, I guess you could say that there's, it's it's intensified in those moments to make a point, but also, is it? Um, Because I, I can guarantee that there are people out there who have sat through conversations like that. Um, And it has been, you know, worded and phrased exactly like that. I mean, I'd like to ask people, you know, a lot of women, how many times have you been asked in your life, whether as a joke or a thinly failed joke or in reality, oh God, are you on your period? Mm -hmm. Um, When being emotional or having a strong reaction to something. So it's definitely one of those things where I think that there's a lot more reality embedded in those in, in those conversations than I am um, people maybe want to admit. Well, this- and this is not a past judgment on anyone. I feel like I'm being uh, being a bitch. Like, I'm just, <laughs> I'm like, how dare anyone ever have a conversation ever? But um, I, I do feel like there is a lot of truth in those moments. Yeah, well, we're all on the same learning curve, so I mean, you know, right. I, I think it's fine to discuss this stuff. Um, we're not demonising people; it's just it's interesting mm-hmm. how much I think behaviour that people were not recognising as damaging is 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 coming to the right. fore, um, mm-hmm. and it's because of stories like this. But it, it's funny you talk about being that that thing about emotional and or hysterical because mm-hmm. there are these scenes in, of therapy. In in this novel, and and it dawned on me after sort of kind of after the fact that it is a bit of a theme because there are three female characters: Caroline, um, her daughter Lila, and and Beth, who is an art student of Caroline's, and and all three of them are in some form of therapy, whether it's a, a, a therapist, a psychologist, or a school counselor, and all three are are dismissed or or downright manipulated in these sessions and mm-hmm. there's lots of references to women being too emotional or hysterical and stuff like that and then caroline's old school therapist refers to his administrators as my girls and when i was reading these scenes i kept thinking like it, it feels like you've really taken the time to carefully choose your words to get across this idea about how men think about and manipulate women did you scrutinize your word choice it, it feels very artfully constructed yeah, yes. Um, those particular scenes with any of the sorts of people who were dealing with those characters' mental health were very, very particularly done. I definitely did not want to go too heavy-handed, and you know, the jury's out on if I did or not, um, <laughs> because I, I, I very well may have. But I, I wanted to make certain that I was getting across this very common point and common I, I'm, I'm searching for the right word and I can't find it but that I think a number of people in dealing with their mental health have not been dealt with appropriately 
And that that is a that's a universal struggle I think a lot of people have um, in trying to find exactly the right psychiatrist, exactly the right therapist, the person who is going to offer you the tools and the resources that are best for you to live in a way that makes you feel content and joy and all of those things that we all want. Um, but those scenes were very particularly constructed and not just particularly constructed because of those points I was hoping to get across, but also because I wanted them all threaded together mm-hmm. because um, mm, I'm trying to phrase this without, and sorry, I'm trying to phrase this without spoiling it. I guess the best thing I can say there is I, I wanted them all to feel different, but similar because they are all tied together once you reach the end. If, if I think that's the best way I can put it. And that I wanted that to have some resonance when we discover how all of this shakes out. Mm-hmm. I, I, ho- I, 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 I don't know if I can make it make much more sense than that without completely giving away the ending. But that in the historical treatment of women and their mental health and just issues even related to pain um, and illness, how quickly dismissed they are. And then how that ultimately can be used in a very particular way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, all these different strands we've talked about, you know, microaggressions and grandiose violence to contextualize what you're saying. I think the way to, I would put it without spoiling it is that in the end, they, they are all part of the same architecture of misogyny. Mm-hmm. And, and whether that is there for, as we said, an allegory or a, or a literal thing, I will leave open to the reader to, to discover. But they're all part of that same scaffolding of of um, oppression. Mm-hmm. So I can see why you want them to feel all part of a whole, those, 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 right. those scenes with the therapists. But, I mean, subtlety aside, and let's talk about that more grandiose stuff because there, there is some kind of overt, some overt awfulness at work. Mm-hmm. Um some of this, I mean, for a start, there, there is a quote that I, I picked out because it really resonated with me for, for a personal reason. Uh, there, there was a quote where you say that they would never understand the inherent trepidation that came as a result of being wrapped in girl flesh. Mm. And I love that because one, it, it, it made the, the threat very visceral to talk about flesh and stuff. Uh, but that exact concept is something that I've had to confront this year because we had the Sarah Everard murder here in the UK, mm-hmm. uh, which occasioned a whole conversation about female fear, essentially. And I realized mm-hmm. my own naivete about this because... I, you know, yes, I knew that the world was a different place for for, for a woman than it is for me, but I didn't realize how different until my wife right. didn't want didn't want to walk the dog, you know, right. um, and and I was like, wow, that it really kind of shone a light for me, and I think a lot of men on just how how different that that sense of threat and that ex, that experience is, uh, and and you represent that threat really, for want of a better word, animalistically in this novel. Mm. So Caroline hears these phantom barking sounds when she's frightened and and she sculpts this savage kind of canine art. And and even the name of the serial killer is an animal reference. He's called, you know, the cur, meaning for people mm-hmm. who don't know, a kind of a sort of mongrel dog. Um right. what what was behind all that, behind that that animalistic theme? Are you not a dog person? <laughs> is it something more than that? No. I love dogs. I we've had dogs my entire life, and they I think they're better than people. Um, but when wanting or when dealing with or developing this serial killer, I very much wanted it to have that animalistic feel because I think that that is the fear of uh, when it comes to violence against women is that it isn't just simple. It is it's intense. Um, it is a loss of control of the body, and it is a a tearing almost of. You think about the intense violence of what it is um, w- uh, when a woman is raped. Of that, it, that is an invasion. Um, and when violence is done against women, it is often 
incredibly overtly cruel. And for me, that animalism lent itself to to dogs, but not just any any type of dog, a dog that is feral, a dog that is um, looking to attack of possibly, you know, uh, I, I didn't necessarily want to go full werewolf, but that was certainly at the back of my mind, that uncontrolled, absolutely unhinged sense of animalism that lies, I think, at the heart of any, anyone who seeks to do violence, um, in an intent, in an intentional way. So that, that dog imagery was one of the very, very first things that came to me as I started writing the, 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 the villain, there we go. And I I just, I kept envisioning just this, this mouth uh, with very, very, very sharp teeth, um, where it looks like a man, but it's not. And I, I couldn't shake that image out of my head. And so it, I just, I, I couldn't help but, but carry that forward um, within everything else. Okay. So to everyone out there right now thinking, oh, it's a werewolf novel. It's far more complex than that. Don't, don't get <laughs> cocky. Um, right. <laughs> w- what interested me about the whole dog imagery was that, like you say, you know, you didn't go full werewolf. And, and the wolf has always been the, you know, the canine monster of choice because it's it's other it's beyond the campfire it's wild and there was something about the use of a dog which was i mean i'm a massive dog lover people on that on this show know that i never stopped talking about it but there is something about a dog being doubly sinister in this context because it's also potentially domesticated it's a threat that can come from within and it's the you know mm-hmm. the idea of you know the, the vast majority majority of, of violence done to women is by people who know them um, right. and I thought that the, the dog thing fit that very well as, as, as well, you know, this sense that it's something that you, you know, a dog can be safe. It can also not be safe. Whereas a wolf is, you know, it's easier to avoid because you know, it's scary. Right. Um, and that, it, yeah, you're absolutely right. Of um, there was a lot of that as well, where, it, it it wears an attractive face and you want to feel safe with it in the same way that you want to feel safe with your therapist in the same way that you want to feel safe with your psychiatrist. And yet beneath that, there is this teeming underbelly that you might not have anticipated. And I think that that idea gets picked up at, going back to the, the microaggressions we were talking about earlier of you, no one would expect, you wouldn't expect someone that, loves you and that you love equally in turn to hurt you in such a way. And yet those things happen. And I'd also like to say that the idea of a dog man is just fucking scary. I mean, that's just (laughs) the the horror part of me liked that as well. Um, But there was definitely a lot of thought that went into weaving in all those other elements. Okay. Yeah. The whole dog man thing. I mean, this is nothing to do with your book, but I've recently become aware of this myth of dogmen in America. Are you, are you aware of this? I am. I was one of the things as I was looking at pictures, I came across it and went, oh, that's great. Yeah. Like cryptids and legends come up a lot in this podcast. It's the thing I'm fascinated by now, and it often horror lends itself to talk about that kind of thing. But yeah, but dogmen are quite a new one on me. This this weird idea of of men discovered in the woods with like the heads of Dobermans. It's, it, I don't think it's real, but something people are seeing something, you know, something yeah. out there. Yeah. Right. Of I, the, the, the part, the part of me that wants to believe in all the supernatural thinks that it's totally real. I'd love to see one one day, but <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Yeah. So th- this, this figure of the cur, just the name is brilliant. How did you come up with that? Was it just one of these things that flits into your brain? Or did you work at it? Because it's such a cool name for a serial killer. <laughs> well, thank you, first of all. And um, in, in first iterations and first drafts of the book, the serial killer did not have a name. And for a long time, in my own brain, it was just the beast. And that was what I knew the serial killer as and what I referred to him as. And it was the beast and that was it. And as I was going back in and doing edits and I thought to myself, it can't be the beast because that's Beauty and the Beast. That's, um, oh gosh, that M. Night Shyamalan movie. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. crap. Yeah. And um, I, oh, Split, there we go. 
And I went, it can't, it can't be the beast of, it, it can live on in your own head that way, but it can't be that. And so I started to think, okay, well, it can't be the dog. That's too simplistic and that's not scary. And running through my phrases for animals in that sense. And the, and as I went from beast to dog, and then the very next word to come into my head was cur. And that word has always been scary to me. And I, and I, I'm one of those weird people where I think certain words are terrifying um, or certain words are more fun than others. I know you brought up the word flesh earlier. I love that word so much. I have to stop myself from using it so much, but cur has always been a scarier word to me because it implies violence and it implies those teeth and it's uncontrolled and it's wild. And that's exactly what this serial killer is of that. There is an association with dogs, but it is unchecked, unrestrained, everything about the, not the animals have ids inside of them, but we do, humans do. And so I wanted a word that encapsulated that. And once I hit it, once I, once I landed on it, it was never not that. I even hate to think that it was ever the beast in my head of, I, well, I want to say it was always the cur because it fits so well, but that was the, that was the development of that name. Yeah. So you just knew it just clicked into place and that was it then. And that was it. And I I was mad at myself for not having it from the (laughs) beginning. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, yeah, it is excellent. It's it's an immediate hook for me, something like that. It just immediately captures my imagination. So, yeah, it's great. Um, in Lila's timeline, it's suspected that the Kerr has resumed killing young girls after this kind of 15-year hiatus. Another thing I love, anything where it's like, it's happened before. Love that trope. Um, mm-hmm. But in, in this second or perhaps, you know, further iteration of the Kerr, People only start paying attention when the second victim is found. And this really mm-hmm. interested me. So, again, there's a quote. When the second victim is found, you write, quote, This one was 13. Private school uniform and knee socks. Horses in a family stable. The kind of girl you notice as opposed to the first girl who was so starkly invisible. And that made me think of this concept that I've come across recently of the lesser dead. Have you heard this phrase? Yes. Think I'm right. It's a phrase used for women whose murder is given kind of less attention because of their race, their class, or their profession. So, sex workers, for instance, are the lesser dead, or the right. the First Nations women who are being killed on on the, the the BC highways, the lesser dead. Right. Um, your characters are white and and relatively middle class. Did that change anything when it came to writing about? misogyny and violence that is that that was a question that I grappled with as I was writing and I I certainly wanted to examine exactly as you said this phenomenon of when it comes to murdered girls when it comes to murdered women who gets the attention and who does not and in looking at that through a lens particularly of socioeconomic levels, um, poverty versus those who are privileged. And that in terms of these main characters being middle-class, you know, white women, white girls, that they would be the ones who fell somewhere in between, probably most likely the ones who would maybe get some, a brief mention, but then maybe disappear after a few days and I certainly recognize and understand that, particularly for people of color, women of color, that attention is even less. And and I, I oh, there's there's a scene too in the 2004 timeline with with Beth, with her mother coming in and mentioning that there there another murdered girl had been found and that it was in it can you can you imagine things like that don't in a nice neighborhood things like that don't happen here and that when it comes to violence against women there is it, it is a great equivocator there there is no dividing line of this one is okay and this one is not but that the way that it's cast um in the media to people that yeah it's usually the second um murder if if they are 
particularly if they are, you know, white, blonde and pretty mm-hmm. that, that that attention is laid on their lap. And um, I, it was certainly something I wanted to talk about, um, but to talk about it in a way that was coming from my own background of being a white woman who had not dealt with that in the past. I, I wanted to address it as appropriately as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I answered the question. <laughs> no, you did. Yeah, no, it's just, I, okay. I wasn't asking you to kind of defend why she, why, why you wrote oh, it. Oh, sure. I, I was interested in the fact that you, you were definitely mm-hmm. acknowledging the fact that there is a, like, I don't know, I sort of like, it's an awful phrase, but a hierarchy of victims here. Right. Uh, and I wonder right. basically whether you felt in any way curtailed by having you know, white bread, suburban um, protagonists, whether you, mm-hmm, whether, mm-hmm. whether it felt like something that had kind of restricted your chance to, to kind of tell the story. I, I don't know. I, I'm now waffling myself. Um, <laughs> it just, it seemed like, it seemed like something we should address. <laughs> I absolutely think that it's something that should be addressed. And I think people are becoming more and more cognizant of it now that we're seeing these cases that, you've seen so many cases of girls who have been abducted or have, you know, vanished from their bus stops. And um, now we're getting a lot more, not as much as it should be, but more attention paid to women who have the exact same thing happened to them. And there's no attention, you know, or no resources given to it at all. And I, I, I definitely did want to make a quick, you know, make a comment on that because it, it is a problem of that, when we talk about misogyny, when we talk about violence against women, when we talk about violence against people who identify as women, that it's not, it's not just one group. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it, there's a tendency for it to be seen as just one group. Um, and it's not. Well, well, even within the kind of relatively closed community of your, of your novel, there are distinctions because in, in Lila's uh, 2019 timeline, she's friends with a girl called Macy, who is <laughs> pretty and popular and cruel. Right. And right. you spend a really good chunk of the early novel showing us how poorly Macy treats Lila and how she inhabits this supposed, and I'm saying this in quotation marks, pretty girl privilege. And I wonder, because right. I don't know, is, is that kind of privilege a thing? Or is it just another manifestation of male entitlement? Is this hierarchy just a reflection of a kind of patriarchal value system? Do you know what I mean? I do. That's an, that's an excellent, excellent question. Because I, I, I really feel and think that Macy embodies that that hierarchy, as you said, hierarchical system, because that's an expectation that I think is placed on women or, or girls from a very young age, you're supposed to fit these parameters. And if you don't fit these parameters, you're not going to be given the same opportunities. You're not going to be granted the same things that maybe you, you, you want to get the good things that are available to you here's how you get them. You get them by being pretty. You get them by being forthwith with your body. You get them by being, um, you get them by downplaying women who maybe you see or deem less than. That's how, that's how you claw your way to the top. That's how you get what you want. That's how you get the things that you feel like you deserve. And that Macy is that character. She is Mm. that girl that, God, I think we've, all known a Macy in our life. Um, and if we haven't known her, we've been very, or tried to be friends with her as because we are hoping to get the dregs of whatever is left over after she's done with it, because we've also internalized that hierarchy. We recognize it. We see it. Maybe we resent it, but you can't help but kind of want a little bit of what she has because she's achieved those things supposedly that we're told to want and if Lila already feels less than that it's an attraction of uh, it's it's an awful attraction but um and I'm speaking from my own experience and then speaking from being a teacher for a really long time you you see it happen with young girls a lot 
who are still trying to find their way and still trying to build up who they are, what they want. Um, and then they're, if someone tells them what to want, and then this other girl appears to have it, mm. even if she is nasty about it, if there's a weird attraction there. But yeah, because what, what you realize in retrospect in this novel, although it's left unstated, is that all those... How do I put this? In, 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 so in real terms, the, you know, the, the, the game playing and the gender politics that someone like Macy plays to get what they've been told to want, etc. All the things you just said. In your world, that's the only way to quite literally survive the threat that you create, isn't it? You know, Macy right. and, and Lila would have very different interactions with the cur. <laughs> because they're because of how they've both learned or not learned to behave right exactly i'll, I'll say no more about that because we are getting right, right on the edge of stuff there but but yeah that's and the other thing about macy is um you realize it's actually during the novel not not just in retrospect we have this very unforgiving opinion of her because she is cruel and and she's so dominant over lila but then mm-hmm. the first time that macy comes under the power of a male character who and it's a lowly male character this boy called Cameron who's just like a just another teenage boy who basically takes her her out one night you know and 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 kind of takes things too far the minute Macy who we think of as the most at this point the most powerful character in the novel the minute she comes under the dominion of a lowly male character she is shown to be Mm -hmm. utterly vulnerable and it completely changes our our conception of how this hierarchy even works. Like Macy may be, you know, sitting above Leela, but she's got every guy in the novel sitting above her. Right. And that is exactly, exactly right. Of that for as nasty as Macy is, or is perceived to be, she is doing that out of what she feels is necessity. And it, it, and when you do, and when you believe that you need to do things that badly, it just becomes a natural part of your personality. But you're absolutely right. Once she goes up against the reality of what it means to live inside her body, in her belief system of what she has to do to be the person she is told to be, she crumbles. And you truly see the reality of what it means to be her. And it's not pleasant. Um, but I, and then there is, it, it, it's, it's a fearful thing, but she's trying very hard to make it not be fearful yeah. of, and, and I think that that, I think that that's where the difference lies between a girl, a, a girlhood and a womanhood of, I am a full proponent that a woman is free to choose what she does with her body and she should not feel bad about that. But when you are a girl and you are 13 years old, that's a very different thing. Well, you've teed me up perfectly for the next question, actually, because um, it's like, this is great. It's like we're, you know, (laughs) we've both got colds. We've both got got really bad Wi-Fi. We are very much on on, on the same wavelength. Um, That's right. (laughs) Because you talk about girlhood and womanhood. And the very point at which I just said where we see Macy in a new light is the same point where Lila and the book just leaves Macy behind. Because Macy, we find out, is a girl. But at that point, Lila begins to change. And it's, right. it's quite the change. And there are, there are constant references to something, I don't know, coming awake inside of her or something entering her or something driving her. And at times, it's mm-hmm. hard to distinguish whether it's the onset of puberty or possession or some kind of monstrous transformation. Absolutely. And, and that is a question that... I personally know the answer to, and I hesitate to give my, give my answer to it because I don't want to color other people's interpretations of the book because that is such, that is such the wonderful thing about reading is that everyone is going to walk away with a different take, a different interpretation, a different feeling. Um, I know what I intended or I know what was going on with Lila. And to me, it was very much more of a possession that than anything else. Um, but very a possession that is very closely aligned to the feelings of or, or, or having a lack of control or the feeling of being uncontrolled 
when you go through puberty, where all of a sudden your body is not your own anymore. You don't understand these things that are happening. You don't understand these very incredible, intense feelings that you're having. And you're trying to navigate all that. And so I wanted to link up this possession or this thing that is using Lila for its benefit, along with that sense of chaos that happens when you are going through puberty. I I think that... (laughs) <laughs> Please, no, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, well, horror writers have always kind of represented female puberty and particularly kind of menstruation and, and the loss mm. of, I don't know, girlish innocence, to use an awful term. They've always <laughs> kind of shown that as some kind of monstrosity because I'm thinking of characters like Carrie, you know, or, or Regan from The Exorcist or, sorry, Reagan rather from The Exorcist or even, this is a more obscure one, Ginger Fitzgerald in Ginger Snaps. Oh, um, you yes. know, God, I that, love that movie. <laughs> don't we just, yeah don't we all puberty is it's always seen as a really quite you know frightening thing but for other people not for the child um right and it feels like you're tackling that trope head on like you're kind of saying enough with that really it's not monstrosity right right well or or how do we how do we look at that monstrosity from the outside of who, who, how do we call it that if we don't understand what's really going on in there? And is it coming from outside? Is it coming from, is the call coming from inside the house? Uh, I, I definitely wanted to look at it maybe in a slightly different angle of when, when you are going through that, when that's all happening to you, um, where, where are those, feelings of turbulence coming from and it, and it is certainly certainly is some, you bring up all those all those wonderful references of yeah when, when do you ever really I'm trying to think see a film a horror film or a horror novel tackle the idea of male puberty as like chaos <laughs> I can only think of one example and that's that's the the, the schlocky film Fright Night Oh yes! Oh, but yeah, I know what you mean. Like a, a male becoming is it's just seen as it. That's often the rite of passage, you know. It, that's often the hero, the, the heroic story. Like it's the body by Stephen King, you know, like boys becoming men. Yeah, it, right. it's it's rarely it's. It, I think it's sometimes seen as chaos if there is a a queer element to it. But the the, the typical notion of yeah. like a, a a straight cis male coming into his own is the, the very definition of of heroism and all that is good but but women becoming anything but little girls in pinafore dresses is been terrifying to the male imagination right yes right we become we become monsters who yeah. will tear out your throat in the back seat of a car um, and yeah i definitely i definitely wanted to play on that though where Lila certainly becomes, uh, but certainly becomes monstrous in the things that she's thinking and the things that she's saying. But then she also begins to slowly recognize that's not that that mm-hmm. is that's not my voice. That's not the thing that is controlling me. But it is playing directly into the stereotype and the expectation that that's what happens to girls when they go through puberty. Yeah, and. And I think that's all I can say about it without giving more away. Indeed. And and basically, there is a really good article to be written on, on puberty and menstruation in, in contemporary horror. But I am not the right person to write that. So listeners, have at it. But please, don't leave it to me to write that article. That would not be a good look. Speaking of articles and things like that, I I read a blog post of yours on your site in which you talk about being a woman in horror. And how men feel the need to gatekeep the genre or mansplain or tell you that you are too pretty to write this stuff. Um, and you also point out that the genre is, is still considered to be a sort yeah. of male domain without ever really being so. I mean, this takes me back to that thing the other day, that, that, or, that article where someone referred to H.G. Wells as the, the founder of science fiction and the world as one went, fucking Mary Shelley. <laughs> yeah, <but> excuse me. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but I wonder, you know, you wrote that article a few years ago. Have things changed at all? Uh, uh, I would like yes and no. Um, I think that there is 
more room at the table, so to speak now, where you, you go or you see cons or you see um, disc panel discussions where once upon a time you would see the women in horror panel discussion. And it was always like the same four or five writers and the questions were always the same and the response was always the same. And I think that there has certainly been a diversification in that now where we're getting more diverse voices, we're getting more diverse responses, we're getting questions uh, that go beyond the, what does it feel like to be a women in horror? And um, inevitably, you know, someone will ask the question, who are your favorite women authors? And someone goes, Shirley Jackson, I wanna rend my head through a wall. Uh, I, I love Shirley Jackson, sorry for my Jackson, my Jacksonite, I love her, she's the best, but like, there are others. And, so I think that the conversation has broadened and the questions are better and the discussions are deeper. I would go so far as to say there are things that have not changed. Um, I think table of contents for anthologies and things of that nature are still fairly dominated on one side. Um, I think that there are still certain voices when they are lifted or when they complain are told that they're overreacting um, and that they need to maybe reevaluate the impact of their words. And this, see, this is where my, this is where the anger, angry part of me comes through. Um, and so I think that there are still some things that we have a long way to go, but in terms of the broadening of the discussions, I think that that has, has gotten better. There's still room for, for progress. Yeah, I, I figure that will be your answer. I, I, just by looking at the people I've had on this show, um, I've had way more female authors than, than male authors. Um, but I think, generally speaking, almost all of the books that have been considered, you know, the, quote, big releases have been male authors I, I likened it to a kind of hollywood season so you get the, like the yeah. blockbusters in summer you get your grady hendrix your chuck wendig your paul tremblay your stephen graham jones don't get me wrong all of which are phenomenal you know writers yeah. wonderful and then you get female authored horror tends to be slightly more in the margins it's the they're, they're the you know the the, the mid-tier dramas they're the the, the the films that get a minor release and they win awards but few people see them you know, they released in february and, and november and it it did feel last year like that was the, the sort of the mm -hmm. calendar for the year and uh, like there were these tentpole fictions by men but the actual accumulative mass of horror was being driven from a female perspective that's how it felt to me uh, i did ask that question to kind of light the blue touch paper and stand back and let you let you rip really Oh, please, by all means, I'm always ready to burn shit down. <laughs> like, um, um, yeah, it's definitely one of those, you mentioned Hollywood and films. I think that's a great comparison because I, I think that that's indicative. You you do see more and more women getting book deals and, and, and you know, significant book deals. I want to see it start trickling to Hollywood. I want to start seeing it where the books, you know, your, your Mallerman mm -hmm. adaptations are now also your, you know, on your Allborn adaptations. Um and so you see those really big Hollywood deals being inked by, uh, by other authors um, because there's room, you know, it's not pie. It's not going to disappear. We're not all going to gobble it all up and it's gone. I think that it's an ever expanding pool. <laughs> and it's happened in crime. That's the thing. You know, yeah. it, it's happened with crime fiction. Crime fiction is driven by, by female um, writers certainly in the UK anyway, in terms of kind of TV adaptations, BBC and stuff like that. Whereas mm. I don't think horror has quite had that, you know, revolution. And may maybe it, it's a horrible thought, but maybe there are still men sat in boardrooms thinking, oh, she's far too pretty to write this disgusting stuff. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Um, um, I, some, it's, it's amazing to me because I feel like every time I have met a fellow woman author, I'm bowled over um by just the sheer not just beauty but like intellect and um sense of humor and everything like that and i'm like you these these women need to be running the world like this is like put them in charge please 
Yeah, Carmen Maria Machado for president. Basically. Oh my gosh, yes. Most let's do it. Of, yeah. <laughs> let's finish on a slightly more optimistic note because I I can't let you go without talking about candles. Ah! Um, it's so you know sent from hell. Yeah. When you aren't writing horror fiction and appalling men with flimsy egos, you create create horror-inspired candles. Very briefly before we finish, I've got to know, how did that come to be a thing? Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, I have always been a um, a scent person. Um, I love love smells. And so a few years ago, probably about five or six years ago, I got really frustrated over constantly purchasing basically lighting my money on fire by buying these very expensive candles because they were the only ones I felt that actually had any smell that would like permeate a room and um, dropping $50 on something that was only going to last me a few days. And I decided I'm just going to figure out how to do this myself. And so it started the learning process and uh, started making my own candles and did that for a few years. And then someone came over to my house and I was burning one and they said, Oh my God, that smells like fall should smell. That smells like Halloween. And in my mind, I know they meant the holiday, but I heard the movie and I went, I have to do this now. I have to bring together these two worlds of my absolute favorite things, things that smell really nice and horror. And um, my husband and I were sitting around and I got to give the credit to him. He has get every podcast I have done where I have talked about the candles. He has ribbed me nonstop when I get off because he's like, you never give me the credit for the name. Justin, I'm listen to me. I am giving you the credit for the name of the company <laughs> sent from hell is courtesy of one Justin Demister, who is a wonderful man. Um, but he he loves puns. And so I had tossed around name ideas and no, not that one, no, not that one. And he threw that out there as a joke and I fell in love with it and I said, I have to do this. So um, he, he gave me, he gifted me that name. And uh, I just had a blast from there of thinking about my, some of my favorite horror films, novels, songs, people, um, and how I might pair that with a scent of if I was going to make that a smell, what would it be? And so my very first one was Michael Comes Home, which was themed after Halloween. And it's got those wonderful fall smells of, uh, you know, uh, smoke and leaves and apple and chrysanthemums and a little bit of vanilla. And I, it just went from there. And I have... I have the most fun doing it. Uh, the The conceptual stage is the best part for me, so I uh, I love it. I'm definitely going to buy one. Um, <laughs> that, that's not like that's not like like you know audio bullshit. I am because I <laughs> I want I want um, a candle called "He Who Walked Behind the Rose." Yes. That will make me smile a lot. So <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna get myself one of those on Etsy. I'll I'll put the link as well in the oh, show fantastic. notes for people who want to. Uh, to scent their houses like their favourite horror film. That's right. <laughs> um, all, that's left, all that's left is to, is to finish now, Christy. Sure. So I have the same two questions I ask each each guest. Number one is, could you recommend a book for my listeners and tell us why? Oh, absolutely. So White for Witching by Helen Oyeyemi. This is probably my go-to when people ask me, what is your favourite book? I have to say this one, even though that list is immeasurably long. But Wife for Witching by Helen Oyeyemi does everything to me that I want a scary book to do. It is unsettling. It is disturbing. It leaves you feeling completely unmoored from reality. It is this lyrically gorgeous haunted house possession story that is about family and generational ties among women and secret keeping. And I, I can't say enough good things about that book. Um, Helen Oyeyemi is a tremendous writer, but that book absolutely just got under my skin and I has not gotten out since I read it. Okay. One of, one of my aims for this year is to get Helen Oyeyemi on the show. Oh, um, that would be amazing. Yeah. Years ago, I, I I went to a conference on her work and I presented a paper on, on Mr. Fox. So I was doing a lot of stuff with metafiction uh, and she plays right in that, that wheelhouse. And and her work baffles me unlike anyone else's. And I, I mean that in a good way. I, I find her completely bewildering. Oh, absolutely. Um, in a way that I, I've never part. once finished one of her books and felt like I know really what has happened. And normally that really pisses me off. 
Uh, but with she she has this kind of ludic, playful, slippery pro style that it just works. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to get her on because that oh, yeah. White Witching is is a great book as well. Oh, so yeah. yeah, I'll put that in the show notes. And um, my last question, Christy, what truly scares you? Oh, and now I'm going to take it back down to a really heavy note. <laughs> um, truly <laughs> scares me is, I, I know that it is inevitable and I know that everyone goes through it, but the thought of dying absolutely terrifies me. Um, the idea of going into something that I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if I'll be alone. I don't know if I'll be unwanted or unloved anymore. I feel so lucky to find myself in a life where I am surrounded by people who make me a better person, who I love deeply, 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 and who love me back. And the thought of that not existing anymore terrifies me. That really brought it down. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Well, my, my job every week is to ask that question and then find a way to possibly end on a positive note. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> that's fine. So to follow up, though, because it's interesting, because this is the thing me and my wife have discussed recently. Um, is it the thought of dying or the thought of being dead? Oh, that's a great question. I think it's the thought of being dead. Just because... I, I, I've seen the die, not that I've like seen the dying process, but I know enough of that to think, okay, that, that, that's a, that's an experience. That is something to be, to, to be gone through. Whereas it's the after that is very frightening. I think I'm weird because I'm the opposite. I oh. have no fear of being dead. I think I like the idea of it just being, you know, turn the light off, we're done. It's mm -hmm. the thought of dying that gets to me. Yeah, disease, anything like that. Like, you know, pandemics are not great times for me. No, it's not. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, whatever we do to get through. And uh, we, we've both got colds and not COVID. So that at least is a, a, it's a good, a it's good a, it's, note. It's, a it's one bright spot. That's right. <laughs> Well, I think we managed to drag it back up there from uh, a possible <laughs> negative end. But, but Christy Demista, thank you for joining me and thank you for talking scared. Oh, thank you so much. I had a wonderful time. So, I'm a big fan of this book. In fact, by the time you hear this, I've already read the first four books to be featured on the show this year and I've loved every single one of them. I can't remember the last time I had that consistent a hit rate. It's been a truly great month and Such a Pretty Smile started the year off right. I think you can gather from the conversation that Christie's book treads uncomfortable waters and I actually toyed with including a trigger warning for this episode but I thought about it and the conversation I think shies away from gratuity or gratuitousness, I don't know what the word is. Either way, that's in keeping with the tone of the book because there is very little overt violence or brutality in Such a Pretty Smile, no matter how much it occasions conversation about those things. It doesn't revel in descriptions of them itself. It's actually a deeply psychological piece of horror, and like Christy and I discussed, it sits right on that line between literal and allegorical horror. And you can make your own minds up on that score. It does, either way, get you thinking about the issues of minor or passive misogyny, though. And as a male reader who is very open to considering my own behaviour, past and present, it, it did make me think twice about things I've said or attitudes I've held that I thought were okay because fundamentally I think I'm a good guy. Now that's not to get all over serious or virtue signalling, perish the thought. I'm, I'm not prostrating myself here as some kind of pariah, but the book did make me think and it actually taught me something, just like, as I compared it to Christie, Zakaya Delila Harris's The Other Black Girl. And if you still haven't read that one, get on it because it's the perfect cousin to such a pretty smile in a weird, offbeat way. Those two books do a great job of conveying that the problem with so many things isn't just the egregious instances of poor behaviour. It's, it's also the accumulation of a million little infractions, 
the, the paper cuts with which I title this episode, each one looks trivial in principle, but the collective mass is devastating. So no doubt there, I've just lost the last few guys who hung on through that conversation with gritted teeth, dying to call me a cook. <laughs> Their loss. For the rest of you though, here's this week's question. Has there ever been a horror novel that has made you really think hard about your own behaviour? There, that's a nice ripe one that should prompt some people to get in touch, possibly to demand how dare I be so impertinent as to ask. Either way, you can get in touch on Twitter or Instagram or even, should a TikTok, at TalkScaredPod. Or you can email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. And if I've managed to get this far without pissing you off, why not leave a review? As well as the all-important Apple podcast reviews, you can now give me a five-star rating on Spotify. And if you do use Spotify, please do that. And do it for other podcasts that you love too. It's just a tiny click of your smartphone screen and it really, really helps. To help even more, if you like, you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod or use the link in the show notes. You get loads of bonus content each month from extra guest questions to my lengthy musings on horror to full exclusive interviews with other horror experts and the latest addition to the Patreon fam are Connor and Kay. Thank you ever so much, you lovely, lovely people. So I've been a bit serious and earnest today, haven't I, thinking about it? Yeah, sorry about that. Those of you who tune in for my award-winning levels of comedy, I'll try to be a bit more frivolous next week. If you just heard a rattle there, that's my dog coming to join me. Anyway, yeah, I'll try and be a bit more frivolous next week when we head off to the Antarctic Wastes with Ali Wilkes and her debut novel, All the White Spaces. Lots of talk of creepy disappearances in that one, and, and they're always fun. But until then, live your life, bare your teeth, and throw your fuck the patriarchy keyrings at Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>